You're listening to a CNA podcast. Hello and welcome to CNA Correspondent with me, Steve Lai. In this episode, you'll hear about the state of the US-China relationship, which, after months of high-level official visits and positive diplomacy from both sides, finally culminated in this. Well, U.S. President Joe Biden and his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping are in San Francisco as they get ready to hold highly anticipated talks on the sidelines of the APEC summit. President Xi, in his early remarks, was looking to dial down temperatures. It's our people's reaching out to each other that has time and time again brought the China-U.S. relationship from a low ebb onto the right track. I'm convinced that once the door for the China-U.S. relationship is opened, it will not shut again. And President Biden spoke plainly about managing competition between the two superpowers and the expectations of the rest of the world. We have to ensure that competition does not veer into conflict. And we also have to manage it responsibly, that competition. That's what the United States want and what we intend to do. I also believe that's what the world wants for both of us. The list of issues, contention and possible collaboration between the world's two biggest economies is certainly a long one. So who better to talk you through the key points than our Washington and Shanghai correspondents, Simon Marks and Lo Min Min. Welcome, both of you. Thanks, Steve. Now, Simon, this meeting was on the sidelines of the APEC summit in San Francisco, but in many ways it overshadowed those talks and it wasn't even in the city by the bay. Well, indeed. And I mean, one of the major aspects of this meeting that took place quite a way outside San Francisco at the Flaloli Historic Estate and Gardens is that the Biden administration was very secretive about the venue for the get together until the very last minute. I mean, about 10 days before the APEC summit began, when the meeting was in the wind, it was said that if it was going to happen, it would be on the sidelines of the summit in San Francisco. Then as we got closer to the APEC summit, they started describing it as being an event that might take place in the San Francisco Bay area. Then when the summit was announced, the White House daily schedule simply described the venue as Northern California, which not only didn't narrow the bore, it actually broadened the scope for where this uh, event could take place. As it was within hours of the meeting actually occurring, we were told where it would be at the Flaloli Gardens, Estate and Historic Gardens. And immediately one thought, well, what what is this place? And we, we discovered that it is a venue that has been used previously to serve as the backdrop for a variety of Hollywood films, including Jennifer Lopez's The Wedding Planner. And those of us of a slightly older vintage remembered it because it also served as the backdrop for the American drama series soap opera Dynasty. It had been used as the the home of the Carrington family in this very popular 1980s soap opera. So that's where they went for this meeting. And then, of course, we saw the pictures of the meeting. We saw the walk in the garden that the two of them took. And then ultimately, President Biden's press conference, which was also they did. They were played very fast and loose with disclosing the venue for that. It turned out to be at the same site as where the meeting had actually occurred. Yeah, and we'll get to that press briefing a bit later on because it did cause quite a stir. Min Min, President Biden said that the goal of the meeting with President Xi was to get back on a normal course of corresponding, being able to pick up the phone, as he described it, to talk to one another if there's another crisis and being able to make sure that their militaries were able to have contact with one another. What were Beijing's expectations, though, and their priorities going into this meeting? 
Yeah, I think Beijing's expectations and their priorities were a bit different from Washington's. And front and center for Beijing was definitely Taiwan. President Xi said that it was the most sensitive and the most important issue in U.S.-China relations. And not only did he say that the U.S. needs to take real actions to honor its commitment to the One China principle, he said the U.S. should not support Taiwan independence and it should stop selling arms to Taiwan and it should support China in its peaceful reunification with Taiwan, adding that China will reunify with Taiwan at some point. And I think the other second major priority for China was the trade restrictions that the U.S. has imposed. President Xi saying that these export controls, investment restrictions and sanctions have seriously harmed China's legitimate development interests. And he asked the U.S. to lift these what he called unilateral sanctions and to provide a fair and non-discriminatory environment for Chinese companies. But there's likely to be no major progress on this front because the U.S. readout of the meeting and uh, President Biden's press conference did not mention this very much. And we know the U.S. has its own gripes about China not providing a fair playing field for foreign companies as well. Yeah, we'll get into more of that in part two. But Simon, given that Russia's invasion of Ukraine and Israel's bombardment of Gaza, it does feel even more important for these two biggest economies and world powers that they are looking for common ground, despite the many differences that they do have. Min Min alluded to a few of them there. But they are looking to manage their relationship, which is a positive sign. Do you think the war in Europe, the fighting in the Middle East has all played a part in that, that they're looking for more commonality? Well, I think there's no question that you couldn't separate the event from the backdrop to it. And the backdrop to it was not just a year of lost time, frankly, in the relationship uh, between the United States and China following their previous meeting on the fringes of the G20 summit in Bali. That, of course, got completely derailed after uh, a series of issues arose in the relationship, including President Biden's decision to shoot down that surveillance balloon from China that drifted into American airspace. So, you know, the bar was low going into this meeting, but the backdrop of the war in Ukraine and the ongoing crisis in Gaza and President Biden throughout the time that he was in San Francisco was constantly burning up the phone lines to try and see what was the latest in terms of negotiations to free the American hostages that were captured by Hamas on October the 7th, among the others taken from Israel to the Gaza Strip. I mean, those were the part of the tapestry that served as the backdrop to all of this. But there was another issue that American officials believe were propelling Chinese officials in their decision to embrace the possibility of this meeting. And that's the state of the Chinese economy. I mean, certainly the White House professes to believe that the difficulties in China's economic performance was the main reason why President Xi Jinping wanted to have this meeting, wanted to be able to, as he did, address directly the captains of American industry and tell them that China is once again open for business. As he said, he promised them a a heartwarming experience if they started to investigate the possibility of entering the Chinese market or in some cases adding to investments that they've already made. So they didn't find agreement over either the crisis in Gaza or Russia's ongoing war in Ukraine. They did, however, discuss those two issues. So there was at least that and many of the other issues on which they actually did make some progress. So it was more than an icebreaker, but it was less than the two men sitting down and saying, look, there are these two major geopolitical crises right now. Why don't we come together 
and find a way of jointly resolving them. If that was part of the calculus going into this meeting, then people advancing the idea will have been disappointed by the outcome. Well, there has been some movement on China's side, though, with regards to these conflict. Uh, Minmin Beijing has offered to facilitate talks between Arab and Muslim leaders. What role does China actually see itself having there? Well, China has been, you know, in recent years, been on this campaign to position itself as a responsible major global player that is an alternative to the U.S.-led system. And we have seen in the past China step up to broker a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia to normalize ties. Now China is trying to walk this balancing act, trying to appear neutral in the Israel-Hamas war. It has repeatedly called for a ceasefire, called for a humanitarian corridor, but it has not condemned Damned Hamas. It has, however, said that what Israel is doing has gone beyond the scope of self-defense and had called on Israel to stop, quote, the collective punishment of the people of Gaza. And we know Wang Yi had said that the root of this conflict is the lack of statehood for the Palestinian people. China has been calling for the implementation of this two-state solution. And although the Biden administration has been pressuring China to do more, to use its ties and leverage over Iran, which backs Hamas, to help de-escalate the conflict, there are several obstacles to that. Number one, it's not clear how much leverage China will want to exercise over Iran. And secondly, even if it does so, Iran isn't necessarily going to yield to Chinese pressure tactics. And analysts are saying neither is China, you know, wanting to be diplomatically entangled in such a complex and deeply rooted issue as the Israel-Hamas conflict, especially when it may not necessarily directly involve its immediate interests. Yeah, it certainly is a complicated issue for sure. And we'll leave it there for part of this discussion. And let's get back then to China's economy that Simon was talking about. I mean, it's been well documented that the economy is slowing. Earlier this month, it was reported its first quarterly deficit in foreign direct investment. That's got to be a big factor in China's thinking going into these meetings, wanting to sort of reset the relationship a bit more, especially since the trade disagreements they had under the Trump administration. So to put that in context, last quarter, China's FDI, the foreign direct investment, was negative for the first time in 25 years. And that means that foreign companies are taking out more money out of China than they're putting into China. And on top of that, we have the property market not doing so well, youth unemployment relatively high. So Overall, this isn't a good time to have hostile relations with America. And we see China now on a big push to try to attract these companies to put their money back into China. That's why President Xi had that dinner with American CEOs on the sidelines of the summit. His key message was to tell them that China is willing to be a partner and a friend with the US, that there is plenty of room for bilateral cooperation. He also pledged to streamline visa application procedures. These are all welcome moves but analysts are telling me that it may not be enough to boost investors' sentiment, especially when there are still geopolitical risks hanging over their heads. As Simon mentioned, those export controls are not likely to be rolled back. And then domestically, there are also uncertainties here over things like how data transfer restriction or the foreign relations law will apply to businesses. And these are things that could cause foreign firms to hesitate over how much to invest in China. And Steve, if I may, it's also just worth making the point that some of those business people that went to that dinner that Menmin was referring to ran the gauntlet of Republican fury up on Capitol Hill with Republican, prominent Republicans on Capitol Hill describing it as unconscionable 
that they had paid money to attend a dinner with President Xi Jinping. So that gives you a further indication of here in the United States, how kind of brittle the conversation is and how complicated life could become for business executives that do decide that they want to accept the invitation that was issued by President Xi Jinping because they will not be making that decision, especially in an election year in the United States, in any kind of a political vacuum. Yeah, and we'll have to get to the election, the US election, and how it's going to relate to uh, the relationship between the US and China. But we'll get to that in part two. Just a quick word, Simon, on the US economy then. We've talked about China's. Biden is coming into these meetings with a considerable amount of strength uh, when it comes to the economy. Despite persistent high interest rate environment, it seems to be doing well, though the government has just about enough money and leadership to function. You mentioned uh, Congress and and how disjointed it can be there. But how is the state of America coming into these meetings? Yes, well, I mean, the best news for President Biden coming into the meeting was the fact that there wasn't going to be a government shutdown, because even when he left Washington, D.C. to head to San Francisco, that was not a certainty. And people were asking the White House, might he have to cut short his visit to the Bay Area and head back to Washington, D.C. to engage in dialogue to try and avert it in the event The new Republican Speaker of the House of Representatives, Mike Johnson, put a package together that bought the president and the country some more time, kept the government open, again, kicks the can down the road, doesn't resolve any of the massive problems that will arise if and when agreement cannot be reached to keep the government open. But President Biden came into the meeting, never mind the political situation back in Washington, absolutely buoyed by the performance of the American economy, which in by, you know, every country around the world would give their back teeth for a chance to be experiencing the kind of job creation that is occurring under Biden's stewardship, the revival in manufacturing, particularly in parts of the country where manufacturing had long been considered dead and buried. And all of that, or much of it, of course, is on the back of President Biden's desire to challenge China when it comes to manufacturing things like silicon chips and semiconductors. So President Xi may have come to the meeting hoping that he was going to persuade President Biden to relax some of these restrictions on those, from an American perspective, sensitive Chinese technologies. But for Joe Biden, this isn't just about the sensitivity of those Chinese goods. It's about creating jobs and boosting manufacturing in America's own Midwest, in American states. And so Joe Biden sees all of that inextricably linked to his own political future, which is one of the reasons why he not only felt confident about his own country's economic performance, but why he also felt that he was in a position to make no progress on those issues of sanctions and restrictions because he really wants to boost the economy domestically. And of course, other APEC leaders at the summit also discovered that on the issue of trade in the negotiations for the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, the Biden administration wasn't giving an inch on market access or the possibility of free trade agreements. That is not where Joe Biden's head is. And it's not where he believes his political fortunes can be best positioned in order for the country to continue enjoying a degree of prosperity and for him to have a chance of being re-elected. Yes, the 2024 election looms large in the background of all of these uh, talking points. We're going to go for a short break here on the CNA Correspondent. When we come back, you'll hear about the positive outcomes from the meetings, as well as the myriad issues that could still pour cold water on the warming ties, including that awkward moment when President Biden yet again called President Xi a dictator. 
Are you looking for ways to make your money work harder? Tips on saving, investing or retiring early perhaps? Or advice on big-ticket decisions like buying a house or owning a car? I'm Andrea Heng, host of CNA's top personal finance podcast, Money Talks. And these are some of the things we find out for you. Each week, I get a guest to share personal stories and answer burning questions that help you make sense of the latest financial trends. Go check out the complete Money Talks playlist on the CNA app, Spotify, Google or Apple Podcasts. You're back with me, Steve Lai, alongside Simon Marks and Lo Min Min, as we discuss the state of play in the U.S.-China relationship, a relationship that had taken months of carefully choreographed meetings and messaging to culminate in a meticulously planned face-to-face between the two leaders. The following news conference brought with it some notable wins. Biden talked up cooperation to stem the flow of fentanyl into the U.S. to help tackle its opioid epidemic and the restoration of military-to-military communications. The U.S. president also parried the more contentious questions about Taiwan and stayed on message until he was just feet from the exit when a CNN journalist got one last question in. Mr. President, after today, would you still refer to President Xi as a dictator? Uh, that we used earlier this year. Well, look, he is. I mean, he's a dictator in the sense that he, he is a guy who runs a country that is a communist country that is based on a form of government totally different than ours. Simon, you've seen up close the shot of Secretary of State Antony Blinken the moment uh, that that all just happened. How would you describe it to our listeners? Well, I mean, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, was sitting in the front row for the press conference, as he often is when President Biden is speaking to the press. And you could see as the question was being asked, he sort of immediately went on alert because he knew that this was potentially a pitfall for President Biden ahead. And then, of course, President Biden, the answer answered the way in which he answered it. And as President Biden said, well, I do still consider him a dictator, even though he then went on to explain in detail why he had reached that conclusion. The Secretary of State visibly recoiled because he knew immediately that coming out of this press conference, that was going to be one of the headlines transmitted around the world. I mean, it was like watching someone who was seeing a hunter setting a trap for his prey. The witness could see the trap existed, but the prey didn't see it and then fell right in it. And Anthony Blinken absolutely recoiling from that. Look, I mean, at the end of the day, it may not have done as much damage as the Secretary of State immediately feared, but the look on his face suggested that he genuinely believed substantial progress had been made during the course of the day. And here was a journalist asking a troublesome question that ran the risk of diverting the progress down a path that obviously, from Mr. Blinken's perspective, was deeply uncomfortable. Yeah, it wasn't a new question for Joe Biden. He has said similar in the past as well. So, Minmin, what was the reaction from Beijing then to this? Well, the foreign ministry moved swiftly to condemn it. They said that it's a form of irresponsible political manipulation and that, quote, some people with ulterior motives are attempting to sow discord and wreck China-U.S. relations. Biden's dictator comments and the foreign ministry spokesperson's remarks to it 
were not covered by domestic news here in China. Political watchers recognize that Biden's comment is probably largely for his domestic U.S. audience. He cannot appear to be soft on China, especially ahead of the U.S. elections coming up. So China has come out to publicly condemn it, but they are likely to, well, analysts say they're likely to just simply let this go and move on to bigger issues. Let's move past that and let's run through some of the wins then from the meeting. Can you each give me three wins from the U.S. and China respectively? Min Min, would you like to go first? Yeah, so restarting military-to-military dialogue, I guess you could count that as a win for both sides, although it seems more so for the US than China. Another one, a small win, but a win regardless. Both sides agreed to step up the frequency of passenger flights between China and the US and increase people-to-people exchanges, which could perhaps go some way to help make things easier for foreign business executives to travel in and out of China. And the third one would be policy concession from the US, reportedly in exchange for China cooperating in counter-narcotics effort. China has gotten the US to lift its national narcotics lab as well as the Institute of Forensic Science from a trade sanctions list. Now, let me explain what this is. The institute is run by the Ministry of Public Security. Well, the Ministry of Public Security is kind of equivalent to China's version of the FBI. And this institute is part of China's security apparatus and was originally sanctioned by the US over alleged human rights abuses against Uyghurs and other minority groups. Though Chinese state-linked media have said that those accusations are without evidence, now Chinese state media has announced that the US sanctions against these institutes had been lifted soon after Biden and Xi met in San Francisco. And that's something that China has long sought after. And some Chinese analysts are framing this as the U.S. rectifying its past errors. Okay. And Simon, for you, three three wins for the U.S.? Well, the biggest win, which is not just a win for the U.S., it's a win for China. And it was also a win for the other APEC leaders gathered in San Francisco, was the agreement that in turbulent times, the two leaders can once again pick up the telephone and talk to one another because they'd not been able to do that. They certainly hadn't done that for much of the past year. And, you know, in a sense, that is an illustration of just how low the bar was going into this meeting. But the fact that they agreed that they can, at any point, pick up the phone and let their fingers do the walking and actually talk to one another if a crisis develops was not just welcomed here in Washington and obviously also on the the Chinese side, but very much welcomed by the other APEC world leaders gathered in San Francisco, who may have been slightly irritated that this summit on the sidelines of APEC was overshadowing them, but on the other hand, were relieved that it made that kind of progress. I mean, other areas of importance, I agree entirely with Min Min about the military to military ties. The United States was very concerned about the lack of routine communication between the US and Chinese militaries, particularly given the near collisions that we've seen between fighter jets in the skies above the South China Seas, also concerns about freedom of navigation exercises in the waters of the South China Seas. So that definitely is an advance. And from the American perspective, and and specifically from the perspective of San Francisco and towns and cities like it all over the United States, President Xi's agreement to take steps to crack down on the illicit shipment of fentanyl and the precursors used to make fentanyl, which have been showing up on American shores, shipped in through the mail, through courier services, very difficult 
for the United States to crack down on them. That is a huge win. You did not have to stray too far from the summit site in San Francisco, the Moscone Center, where the APEC leaders were meeting, to see with your own eyes evidence of the fentanyl epidemic that has brought many American cities to their knees. Fentanyl drug overdoses are now the largest cause of death among Americans aged between 18 and 45. And so I did an interview with the mayor of San Francisco before the summit happened, who was extremely eager to get whatever help the United States could get from China in that regard. And I think that there is some degree of relief here that it may at least stem some of the flow of those chemical precursors uh, into the United States that are just doing devastating damage here. Yeah, President Biden is very keen to talk about that at length during the media conference after the meeting as well. Let's move on then and work through some of the sticking points or areas of contention between the two nations. Uh, give me your top three again. Min Min, you can go first because the biggest one is pretty obvious. Yes, the biggest one is obviously Taiwan. No matter how much China says about it, it doesn't look like the US has given any assurance. Well, not the kind of assurance that President Xi was looking for. The second one would be the export and trade restrictions on China. Again, Biden said nothing about those in his press conference after the meeting. It's unlikely that one meeting like this will cause the US to roll back on these restrictions. And third, I was thinking hard about this one. I think it would be perhaps China trying to change the conversation and the nature of the relationship, getting the US to not see China as competition, but as a country to coexist with. But that message doesn't look like it's landing on President Biden. Simon, your thoughts? Well, I think Min Min's absolutely right about that. I mean, President Biden talked about his aspiration to establish a rational and manageable relationship with China. That's very different from a collaborative, cooperative relationship with China. And so I think that, you know, we know that there were obvious disagreements and areas where there was no disagreement, Taiwan being the most obvious. Although it was very interesting that at the press conference, President Biden said that pretty much the only thing that he had said to President Xi about China was that this the United States government will continue honoring the one China agreement. And he said that was about the extent of the conversation. Well, his own officials were briefing reporters and saying that actually the conversation was much deeper than that and involved the disagreements that Min Min described over arming Taiwan, interfering in Taiwan's election. And then we got the White House readout, which went into chapter and verse about the nature of the conversation that they'd had. So clearly there was no common ground there, but President Biden wanted to accentuate the positive, not the negative. I mean, the other areas of in which no progress was made, no surprise, but human rights, President Biden didn't even mention it during the course of his press conference. But again, if you read the readout, it is apparent from the way in which the summit was reported by the White House that the issue of Xinjiang and the Uyghurs was once again raised by the United States president, who didn't receive any positive feedback from President Xi Jinping, according to the White House readout. And the other area that is worth mentioning is the South China Sea. And, you know, President Biden again reiterating that the United States views its treaty partnerships in the region, as he always puts it, as being ironclad. And again, it was apparent that there was no agreement on that. But I suppose the theme of this meeting was an agreement to disagree. And that's a better place than the bilateral relationship has been in the year leading up to it. 
and an agreement to keep talking and keep the communication lines open, which is a welcome development for all the smaller nations watching to see how the US and China get along. Let's talk about the other election that is also looming on this relationship, and that's the US election in 2024. Joe Biden will be looking for a second term in office, and his main challenger, it looks like it's going to be a rerun of what happened in the previous election. Donald Trump is very much the lead favorite to win the GOP or the Republican nomination, although he is, by all intents and purposes, tied up a lot of the time in court, facing various court cases. I want to ask you both how this election is going to be seen by both China and the U.S. Mimin, I'll come to you first and get your take on how China is seeing the upcoming U.S. election. Yes. So, well, Trump is one of the candidates that could be running for it. And, you know, look, Trump had started the American First policy. He imposed tariffs on hundreds of billions of Chinese goods. And then Biden continued it. The former President Trump amped up U.S. support for Taiwan, which Biden has continued. So you can say in some ways that Trump had upset this long-standing U.S. policy on China that was more constructive in the past, that sought to mitigate risk of conflict and maximize areas of cooperation. And if we see a return to the Trump administration, I'm not sure we'll necessarily see U.S.-China relations improving. But that said, when I speak to analysts, the sense I'm getting is that China perhaps sometimes would find it easier easier to deal with Trump because he comes with a sort of businessman mindset. He may be less ideological, less bothered about pushing China on human rights issues and more open to negotiations if there's room for win-win cooperation. And yes, Trump could be unpredictable, but between Biden and Trump, China would probably prefer an American leader who is perhaps less able to rally and effectively coordinate with traditional friends and allies, including those in Europe, as well as those in China's backyard, like Korea, Japan, India, Australia, and even Taiwan. Thanks, Min Min. So Simon, what's the perspective from the US then when it comes to the upcoming election next year and how and if that is actually going to be playing a part with its relationship with China? Well, I think it's inevitably going to be playing a part because, of course, once the election moves into full gear, it's really the only story in town in the United States for most of the next year. It was interesting that in the days leading up to the summit, a senior administration official speaking to reporters said that when the Biden administration came into office, they believed that China had concluded, as a result of the Trump presidency, America was in terminal decline, that it was all over for the United States, and that President Biden's aim at the meeting was going to be to push back against that notion and really say to President Xi Jinping, no, the United States has still got it going on, and liberal democracies, as President Biden likes to say on a continuing basis, still have the capacity to perform better for their people and therefore their voters than autocracies like China and Russia are able to achieve. The difficulty with that argument is that you've got Donald Trump riding high in the polls, certainly among Republicans in the race for the party's presidential nomination, and in national polls, increasingly looking like he stands a chance of beating President Biden for re-election. We've seen more numbers in that regard in the days since the meeting between Presidents uh, Xi and Biden came to an end. 
So the Chinese, the Americans obviously realize that the Chinese have got a calculation to make. Do they perhaps still think the country is in terminal decline? But, you know, at least if they can spend a few months engaging in a positive relationship with President Biden, well, that's better than wasting more time in the bilateral relationship. Or do the Chinese, are they reaching the conclusion that Joe Biden stands a chance uh, of really securing four more years in the Oval Office? The American president always likes to say, and he said it again and again in San Francisco, that the world is at an inflection point. Well, that's true of the world, but it's even truer of where the United States is going to find itself in November of next year, because all of the work that Joe Biden has been doing since he arrived in the White House will immediately be reversed if Donald Trump finds himself back in the Oval Office. And clearly, China is going to have as much of an interest in deciding how to respond to a development like that as any other country around the world. And this is an issue that has really bedeviled Joe Biden's presidency. This notion that when he says he's told world leaders America is back, there are some world leaders out there that just don't quite believe him. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see how this uh, plays out into the new year and all the way up to November for the election. Uh, Thank you both, uh, Simon and Min Min. We'll have to leave it there for today. Cheers, Steve. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Two quotes from President Biden and C stood out to me from the meetings. Biden saying that they have to ensure that competition doesn't veer into conflict, and C saying planet Earth is big enough for the two countries to succeed, and one country's success is an opportunity for the other. Time will tell if their actions will match their words, and given the many ways their interests intersect and overlap with each other, it won't be long till we have some idea if the two most powerful and influential countries in the world can find a way to get along. Whatever happens, you can be sure we'll be covering it for you right here on CNA. The TV version, CNA Correspondent, airs on CNA every Wednesday at 9.30pm. You can also catch up with it wherever and whenever you like on CNA.Asia. Do like and subscribe to this podcast version that takes you behind the scenes with our correspondents. It's available on our website and mobile app, as well as Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. Thank you for listening. Our podcast team is made up of Sai Wint, Crispina Robert, Clara Ong and me, Steve Lai. 